dum 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 you were sort of like you're laying down a bass that I would come in with a guitar riff, but that's fine. You can try again if you want. No, we have failed the mission already, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely people at the other end of the gun barrel. We are. We are the not well that Bond refers to. Although we wouldn't be any match for him. We would be very well if we were his first victim. How'd it go? Really easy, actually. It was a bit embarrassing. Actually, so upsetting. So so easy that it actually was a bit upsetting. I'm not even sure it counts. <laughs> because they can't all be like that, right? They didn't even know what was happening. The bullet went through them like they were made of tissue paper. <laughs> Wet, wadded tissue paper. Well, it went through the first rob. The second rob was just so absent-mindedly talking about a film we'd seen that he stepped in front of the path of the bullet, so it was like a twofer. That can't count. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get my double O on that. That was two kills, but I can't get my double O on that. I'll be the laughing stock of the entire department. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> They're just two no-marks who won't be missed. Hello, and welcome to the... <laughs> uh, that was a cold open, wasn't it? <laughs> Fate draws us back together. Now your enemy is my enemy. How did that happen? Well, you live long enough. Harder to tell the good from bad, villains from heroes these days. We used to be able to get into a room with the enemy. Now they're just floating in the ether. Did you know that? What is it? You don't know what this is. Is she one of them? I don't know her at all. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. James Bond. We both eradicate people. To make the world a better place. I just want to be a little tidier. I met your new double O. She's a disarming young woman. Have you ever flown one of these things before? Nope. Don't do this. There will be nothing left to say. When you're ready. You're late. Can I just have one nice evening, please, before the world explodes? Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, it's a genuine delight to be joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. Do you expect me to talk, Gold Wallace? 
I hope. Otherwise, this is going to be. But I've got some notes, but I think it's the uh, I think it's the the dialogue that really makes it. This is the cut and thrust, isn't it? Although our listeners will be surprised to hear that we are kind of on the same page on this one, I think. So there's not going to be a cut and thrust to this, but we'll see how it goes. Not only on the same page, but in the vicinity of each other. Yes, we are. Absolutely splendidly. We are not talking remotely. I am down in London for the London Film Festival. So really splendid to be sitting across from you. With our our morning coffee. Yes. And I have a gun under the table... With a long tube to shoot you Stromberg style. Well, Rob, mate, I can see where both your hands are, so I'm worried about how you're playing on. <laughs> it's groin activated. It is groin activated, that's right. And I've got to do it quickly before you release the shark tank, or the trapdoor to the shark tank. So Yeah, the neighbours on the floor below did not like that. No. <laughs> Big shark tank on our ceiling now. Oh, okay. Apparently made the value of the flat go up. So, I've no idea what we're going to be talking about today. (laughs) Well, today we are going to be talking about, (laughs) finally talking about, No Time to Die. Hooray! I think, yeah, we mentioned this on the Invisible Man podcast at the end of February last year, and I think, if memory serves, we were talking about how it had been moved back from its April release date, and we might have to wait to the summer of 2020, we'll see how this whole thing goes, because there's probably going to be a lockdown, right? And that's going to be about a month or so, and I don't know, we'll see... We'll bring you up to date on Bond when it comes out this year, the year of our Lord 2020. Yeah, the charming naivete of past Robs. The fact that it was like, that was February. It's like, if we were told at the time that it's going to be next autumn, as in not next autumn, the very next one, but autumn of 2021. It's going to be 20 months. Yeah, is it? Is it 20 months? It, yeah, well, it would have been, yeah. Yes, it, Jesus yeah, my God. Well, when near you, enough. When, yeah. when you put it, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, when you put it like that. Oh, God. But uh, yes, so No Time to Die has been released. You might have seen it on the news. It's been on a couple of news stories. as like, yeah, the last item of the day, I think. The final outing for Daniel Craig. And we will be talking about it. So where shall we begin, Mr. Bond? Well, no, just to set it up beforehand, um, we went to see it at the Cineworld IMAX with a couple of friends, including one Mr. Chris Carr, who runs the Secrets and Spies podcast. And he will be joining us, well, he'll uh, be recording a little insert later on and giving us his opinion, his, uh, you know, his much better informed opinion. Yes, he was someone who, when we left the screening of the film, was just coming out with some some real gold about how it ties into, for example, the book of You Only Live Twice. And there were lots of references in there for the Bondophiles, as well as for the more fair-weather Bond fan. And even though I do like the Bond films and I've seen all the Bond films... And I've read a few of the books. I'm not on the same page or even in the same ledger uh, as what Chris knows. When you say Bondophiles, I think the preferred term is Bondy fans. Bondy fans. I was trying to think of something funnier. and the cl- All I can do is get vaguely close to OnlyFans. Oh, God. If any of our listeners got OnlyFans from Bondy fans... Let us know. Oh, and no, we'll, and I, I don't and even we will the, buy you a drink. I don't even have the ability to edit this one. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm back at being at the will of someone else. Yeah, indeed, that stayed in. <laughs> Bonedly fa- No, it doesn't work. I don't, the irony being, of course, is that there probably is an OnlyFans paid for someone who does things about James Bond. Yeah, pay for that. OnlyFans would be a weird, you know... Did you know, on the uh, to do a very slight crossover with our other podcast, Another another Time McLeod, uh, which is about Highlander, the actor Corrine Russell, who uh, we know 
and love as Candy. Yes. Is one of, if not one of the silhouettes, if not the silhouette in Octopussy in the opening sequence. Did not know that. That's amazing. Going to have to check that out then. Well, that's great. That makes complete sense as well. No time to die. Shall we dive into our thoughts on it? Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for the IMDb synopsis with a sense <laughs> of trepidation. I saw that muscle memory going for the IMDb. I thought we weren't going to do the IMDb anymore because they betray us so often. I mean, it's functional. Let's go on. Do you want the longer one or the shorter one? They are almost exactly the same. Let's go for the shorter one. James Bond has left active service. His piece is short-lived when Felix Leiter, an old friend from the CIA, turns up asking for help, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. Yeah, that's I mean, that right. miss it, that, you know, that's the plot. Yeah, and other than him being called back into the service, it's pretty much the plot of every single Bond film. It's either Felix or M will send him off on a mission. In this one, I suppose that the big difference in this one is that there are big emotional stakes because, of course, at the end of Spectre, because we all remember Spectre even though we don't want to, at the end of Spectre, he drives off into the sunset with Madeline, played by Leia Sadu, And it's a happy ending for him. Such a happy ending that there was a theory that it was all just a fantasy and that he was still in the torture chair, which is something you came out with. And then it started to be written up elsewhere. And it's like, Rob, you've got to write this stuff down because <laughs> it's so good. When you said, I think the end of Spectre is actually the end of Brazil. It's like, oh yeah, it is, isn't it? So we begin in Italy. Uh, he's living a pretty nice life with Madeline. And then something happens to pull him into the game again. Oh, I really hoped it was going to be like travelogues. It was going to be like the trip, but with Daniel Craig and Lisa Do. I thought this was going to be the before sunset of the Bond films. It was just going to be them hanging out in like a brasserie or something or an Italian kind of coffee shop. And uh, yeah, I'd have. It'd be interesting to see how much of that would have been actually just very, very watchable because I was kind of just enjoying them hanging out in a very nice area. Is it Italy or is it. I think it's Italy. It is, isn't it? Because they mention an Acropolis, which is Greek, right? This is just my ignorance here, but uh, but I think it's Italy that they're in. Yes, in Matera, Italy. Okay, fair enough. I am to show my ignorance then. And then they're pulled into the game. And there will be a spoiler section on this there one. There has be- to be. Because there's a lot of things here to talk about in this film. There are genuine surprises in this film in a way that... Yeah, we're not going to talk about it before we get to spoilers, but there are some big, bold story strokes in this that I'm actually glad that I didn't know about before I went in. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't read the reviews because a lot of the reviews talk about it. And um, Which is just inexcusable, isn't it, really? Yeah, and there's like a number of of big things that happen. It's like, I'm actually quite glad that I didn't know the story. So we're going to do a pre-spoiler section and then... A spoiler section. But I'm thinking, should we say, because it's kind of in the trailer, why the thing with Madeline comes to an end. So I think we can give that away. Because it's at the very yeah. beginning of the film. He thinks that she has betrayed him. Yeah. And to be completely honest, that was an element that I thought, well, you're taking a lot of stuff on faith there from people you shouldn't be taking on faith. I thought that was a bit forced just to get into the actual plot. But, I thought he would have questioned that more. But then again, yeah. And that's the thing, because at the point, he is... So- so that's not to use the phrase softer than we've ever seen Bond, but that seems vaguely... He's, <laughs> a, so he's much less guarded, much more open in a way that's really quite striking. And yeah, and it, immediately, obviously, his guard goes back up, which on one hand, it's like, it's Bond. I get it. I can imagine that he would immediately go back into double O mode. Mm. And yeah, and then obviously there's a 
a bit of a time jump, as you can, you know, which I think I don't think that's a spoiler because because no, you know we've just talked about the synopsis. It's like he you know he literally says goodbye to Madeline and then Felix Leiter immediately turns up. It's like there's a little bit of time between them, and that's the thing. I think in a lot of ways this bonds a real paradox because it is in some ways bond unlike anything we've seen before and in others really probably narratively the most traditional of the Craig Bond films just in terms of the villain and this film has gadgets like proper obviously famously Phoebe Waller-Bridge came on as a screenwriter for us and the film's got a lot of it's quippy but not in like a distracting way it's like oh this scene is both funny and touching and has some action in it it's like this film is, to check the 163 minutes long, and it's intense pretty much the whole way through. But before we begin, what did we overall think of the Bond film? Are we coming at this from a um, from a position of it was very good, or it was good enough, or it wasn't very good? Uh, you, before we got on this, very rightly compared the film to The Last Jedi. Yeah. And much like The Last Jedi, I really liked it. <laughs> Yeah, me too. That we, I think, both thought this was either very good or great. I didn't think it was five stars. There was a point when I did think it was going to be five stars. There's actually a point in this film where I thought this could be my film of the year. By the end, it was like, that's not my film of the year. Probably be my top ten, but it's certainly a very good film. And it actually has achieved the impossible in terms of I am looking forward to just watching the Craig Bond films in a big five film binged just to see the arc of the story. And that of course includes Spectre, which is I think one of the worst Bond films. It's certainly incredibly dull. But because of this film, I thought, well actually, yes, I will go back and revisit Spectre because you kind of have to. Um, this film was in some regards a less clumsy Spectre because obviously Spectre was Sam Mendes doing Bond's greatest hits. There, you know, there are sequences in it recording, okay, they're on the ice. This is very like The Living Daylights, or they're on a train, okay, so we're kind of doing Wolf from Russia with Love, or, you know, Live and Let Die, or, you know, Take take Your Pick. Yeah, indeed. On Her Majesty's Secret Service in the Snow, and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, whereas this, there are moments that recall earlier Bond films, but it's never, they are never the set piece. It's no. like, it's like beats as opposed to, oh, you've structured, a, you know, this whole sequence around, hey, as you say, you know, you liked on, on a Majesty's Secret Service, though there is obviously a bit of that in this one. There is, but that's the thing, though, that is, is that this is a film that says, we know we have 24 films before this, we have enough here that you will recognise the tropes of a Bond film and we can quote them, and you will like that. The difference between this and Spectre is that Spectre said, let's just lift and shift scenes. Because Spectre just has such an air of desperation about it because it's a film that's following Skyfall. Skyfall was the biggest Bond film. It was also, I think, the biggest film at the UK box office at that point. It was a juggernaut movie and it was released for the 50th anniversary of Bond and it just got Bond absolutely right in my humble but correct opinion. And Spectre is a film fittingly haunted by the fact that it is a sequel to Skyfall. And Sam Mendes didn't want to come back because he didn't think he could do it again and he was persuaded to come back and he couldn't do the game yeah it is just a greatest hits package with a as we said pretty thin story and And as you said at the time an ending that only makes sense if you think this is all a complete fantasy because he has been tortured to the point where he's locked himself into a room in his mind and is now just imagining a A happy outcome yeah it's like oh and there are (laughs) there are some subtle some less subtle almost repudiations of spectre in no time to die 
the, at least one bit that had the audience laughing because it's like, uh, there we go. Yes, indeed. And we'll get to that in the spoilers as well. So before we get to spoilers, what did this film do well? Let's start by talking about the action. It's Kari Joji of Kanaga. Yeah. Who took over from Danny Boyle, decided he didn't want to do it, which is odd. Cause it's like, what creative freedoms did you think that you were not getting? I mean, either Danny Boyle wanted to make different bold choices, or maybe he didn't want to make bold choices. Maybe he just wanted to make a Bond film. Everyone's gone, maybe he was this dazzling, that dazzling visionary. Maybe he just came on board as like, no, I just want to make a Bond film. If I make this one, which I don't necessarily agree with, I won't get a chance to make another. It'll be interesting to see when they do the reboot with a new Bond, if he comes on to do that Bond film, and to your point, if it is just a traditional Bond film. Because it could be that. Because I was thinking that, I was thinking, what are the choices that he wasn't allowed to make? It would be interesting to see the script that he wanted to shoot. So so there's there's some great action sequences. There's the one in Italy that's pre-title sequence. You know, the action is very well shot. And there are, in a way, and I don't know if this may be partly the influence of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, there are emotional and comedy beats in the action that you shouldn't take for granted. Because it's like, oh, that we're doing an action sequence and here's a comedy beat. Here's an, and it's not it's not kind of as schematic as that. Yeah. But it's not just, okay, here's five minutes of shooty-shooty. It's like, oh, here's five minutes of shooty-shooty and it's imaginative and well shot. And there are moments in that you'll be like, okay, that can do multiple things. Well, watching this, I thought it seems as if all the actors, and Craig in particular, are just having fun with the action. And they know that they're in good action scenes, and they know that they're in exciting action scenes that are very similar to the experience that you would get when you watch Bond as a kid. And and again, it just goes to something that I am just going to bang on about forever. If you're making an action film, you need a director who can direct action. And Fukunaga did True Detective Season 1, but he also did a film called Sin Ombre, which I think might have been his first film. And I interviewed him about that years and years ago. And one, he was a really nice chap. But two, he is a guy who's very, very comfortable with telling a story, one on the move. Sin Ombre, I think it's two or three stories about people from Mexico trying to get into the States. And they're separate stories, but they kind of come together towards the end. One of them's about a gang member who's fleeing this gang and the gang come after him and if they get him then he's dead and there are just really tense and suspenseful moments in terms of the chase sequences in terms of the action but it's a story that uses action to tell the story and doesn't just stop to have an action scene and I thought that was very similar to what he does here but yeah it was really interesting because he was such a nice guy I think I had about 20 minutes with him but he gave me like a few minutes more because I had a couple other things I wanted to talk to him about I don't think that would happen now. No, <laughs> I think you'd be, you'll, you've got four minutes, so you can ask you one question. But he's had a really interesting career, because after Sin Ombre, I thought he would go on to do another thriller. He did The Jane Eyre with, um, was it Michael Fassbender? With, uh, with Michael Fassbender and, and um, Mia Wasikowska. Oh, there we go. Which had the music from Suspiria in the trailer, uh, the original Suspiria, which got me very excited. And that's a pretty good adaptation of Jane Eyre. But then True Detective was a thing I think that most people than knew him from, particularly the one-take action, or like yes. the one-shot action scene that, of course, isn't it? It's all stitched together. But it was a bold end to that episode. And again, it's like, we have to stop just getting indie directors who are good at directing actors. We need to get people who can do both and can direct an action scene. And I think that No Time to Die is a very good example of why you have to do that, because there wasn't a single bad action scene in this. Also, unusually for Bond film, I mean, um, they get Jeffrey Wright back as Felix Leiter, but I don't, I don't think it's important to say it's not 
for the most part actually that involved in the action. He's kind of there to he's there to kind of instigate. Yeah. Um, but you've also got uh, Lashana Lynch as Nomi, who's the new double O agent. Again, she's been featured in the trailer. Yeah. Um, you've got well, she's actually double O seven, isn't she? Yes. Dad, have they revealed that officially? Yeah, I think we. I, I yeah yeah yeah, Eagle, I, yeah yeah. I knew that so before, but it was so um, obvious because it's like, well, Bond stepped down. They've sent a double O to meet him. I, the one thing I don't buy about this, you're really telling me the civil service is going to backfill. Yeah, you're really, right. you're really yeah. saying they, you're really saying they've got they've got their head count. That's so true. So like, no, no, and it's like, so he's left. Well, we don't need to fill that. That's a cost saving. That's a cost saving for next year's budget. <laughs> it's a very good point. They would never backfill. It goes from 006 to 008. <laughs> very good point. As we said, this is just complete fantasy. <laughs> and you also got uh, Anna Diarmas, who who worked with Daniel Craig on uh, Knives Out, playing another agent. Yep. And she, yeah, she's wonderful in it. She's um, playing Monroe in a film that's coming up, and I'm going to just Marilyn up. Monroe. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah, she's playing uh, Marilyn Monroe in uh, a Netflix film. It's called Blonde, and it's directed by Andrew Dominic. Wow. Okay. And who did Chopper and um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? That'll be interesting. And there are definite notes of that in her performance here. She's very like even if I didn't know she was playing Monroe, there's just a look and like a that she that she gives Bond when she first meets him. It's like you're that's a real Monroe mannerism. And it does carry through to the performance in really quite a winning way. Yeah, her first look is very very gentleman prefer blonde um, blondes. I think when she first appears in the... gentleman prefer Bond. Gentlemen Prefer Bond. Bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There has to be a film called Gentlemen Prefer Bond. Although that's definitely a gay porn title. <laughs> I was going to say, there is a film within a particular genre of cinema called Gentlemen Prefer Bond. It is within the arena of gay erotica. Be interesting to see that one. Um, we will have to write a... <laughs> there are going to be Rob, puns there, Rob, aren't there? you keep trying to get me to write porn and I keep saying no. <laughs> <laughs> but the titles... The Guy Who Loved Me... But getting back to No Time to Die, you don't get this on the Bond podcast, do you? Um, so, yes. Do you think that Shanna Lynch, who was really good, I mean, that's the thing, is that there isn't a bad performance in this. No one phones this in. I think everyone realises they've got a good script. So it's Purvis and Wade, who have done the previous ones for Craig, and also, as you said, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who bring some humour to it. But I think also a lot of the emotional beats come from her as well. I think that's something she can land better than the writing team of Purvis and Wade. Shanna Lynch, I think, is just realises this is a potentially star-making role for her because what I liked about it was that she's in it. She's in the film. She is a major part of this movie and I thought she was going to be given short shrift but she wasn't and and that was really good. Do you think her name Nomi is a reference to James Bond being called 007 and her saying Nomi? <laughs> there has to be a reason why she's called Nomi and it's like no, me. Um, but anyway, that was just a thought. So uh, the action was really good, and the personal relationships, I think, were really good. It is 163 minutes long. Did it justify the runtime? Uh, the pacing is strange, as I think I, don't, I know it's been commented elsewhere. For the most part, yes. Like, looking at the film, it's like, I'm not sure what I would cut. I'm looking forward to seeing the film again for many reasons. One of them is to see, is there anything here that can be cut? I don't think any of the beginning can be cut, even though apparently it's about 20 or 25 minutes before the end credits, um, sorry, before the beginning credits start. Because I was watching it thinking, we are a long way into this film and we've not had the opening song yet. 
And then when it comes, it's like, it actually surprised me because it's like, oh yeah, we do need to have the opening credits, don't we? Because this is a Bond film. and it, But it comes about 25 minutes in. The opening credits, um, I guess we can if we touch on them briefly. There's definitely, some of the stylization recalls Casino Royale. The kind of the fully like coloured in silhouettes. And you had a good point about some of the symbolism in it. And yeah, and it was, and you thought the same things because I was thinking as, as I was watching it, am I just reaching here? because I voted Remain. But the opening credits are based around the image of a fallen Britannia. You know, the woman with the trident and with the shield, the fallen image of that, so it's half buried in sand. And I thought, is this an anti-Brexit reference? The fact that Britain is just weaker than it was, and the symbol of Britain has been tarnished by the fact that we have proven to be just a small island mentality. Well, there's also, I mean, the fact that the reason that Lighter commissions Bond because the relationship between CIA and British intelligence has broken down, that's not the only way in which this film has become, in this case, inadvertently topical. No, there's... I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll save that for the spoiler section. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> but it, it's quite remarkable. <laughs> Some of the things, yeah, you can see the reason why they thought, oh, no, we have to wait a little bit for this one. The fact that it's worth the wait is very good. Well, before we get into spoilers, shall we talk about Rami Malek? Obviously, he plays the Bond villain. Is it Safin? Lucifer Safin. Lucifer. Yes. Lucifer Safin. So, uh, Lucifer... Yeah, I mean... Yep, and Safin, is that a reference to anything, I don't know, from, Um, um, from Dante or from Paradise Lost? It doesn't matter. He is the Bond villain. He has a nefarious plan for world domination as a lot of the Bond villains do. It has to be said, this was, in some ways, this really reminded me of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in that they are just not interested in their villain half as much or at least a quarter as much as they are in their hero. This whole film is about Bond, as it should be because it's the final outing for Daniel Craig, but the villain is is a MacGuffin in and of himself. I mean, yeah, it doesn't really appear until about an hour into the The villain is set up with a very specific psychology that enables the plot to progress. Which is not to say that it's not interesting, but a lot of what he says and does, you're like, okay, that, you know, that's fine, I buy that. But that's essentially, you've only been given the depth that's required for this film to proceed. I think Remy Malek gives a good performance. He gives a very controlled performance. I think the most similar character would probably be um, Javier Bardem in Skyfall, would probably be Silver. And I think that's kind of the dynamic mm. that they want to go for. But I don't think the film at its, you know, two, uh, two hours and 43 minutes has space for a have a Bardem performance. Which is saying something, because it's like, okay, this film is almost three hours in it, and it doesn't have space for a performance from the Bond villain. But you're right, it doesn't. There's so much else going on in this film. that it does, And I, I think you're being very, very generous there. I didn't think that he, he didn't remind me of um, Silver in Skyfall. I mean, I don't think that Harvey Biden would have been particularly much better if he'd been given this role, because I just don't think there was a lot to work with. It would be interesting to see if they release, I think for the first time, a longer cut of this film for Home End, um, if there's like a three-hour cut. And I would imagine that some of that would be Rami Malek, because I mean, it just felt like his performance... They'll release a mini-series on Amazon. That's where Amazon are going to get there. Yes, they will. Well, yeah, that would be interesting. Because this is the kind of thing, actually, that you could see, I think, being turned into three-part special. I think there are some natural endpoints here that you could actually structure a limited series round. And then each episode has to open with the full, like, five-minute title sequence. <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's right. With no skip option. 
<laughs> Again, it's one of those things where they've gone for the Bond villain is a reflection of Bond himself. They are very, very similar in some ways, which does seem to be just like a leitmotif of the Craig era. But in this film, it's like, well, they really, really go for that because they are very, very similar in their interests. So, um, I mean, I didn't think they could make the fact that they both like drinking and gambling. That, yeah. that. <laughs> who else likes that? <laughs> I thought that Rami Malek was good enough. I think that his character is actually quite subdued, which was interesting. And Rami Malek, there's definitely, he's got obviously a very direct stare. There's something a bit like a cobra about him, especially with the kind of, and I know there's been some controversy around Bonds continuing to use villains who have sort of you know, facial scars or demonizing. Anyone with a less than an ordinary and very heavily inverted commas face. And that is interesting. Like, there was no reason for him, I thought, I thought, to have like a facial deformity in this. It was like, it just seemed to be there because that's what we do for Bond villains. And also, it's just very quick, lazy shorthand to say this guy is a wrong one. I think that's something we need to move past now. Because yeah, I think it's partly no because everybody who's all of Bond's allies, everybody on the side of the angels, is a matchless beauty. <laughs> Even Jeffrey Wright, because it's one of those things where you watch a Bond film and you think, okay, if I was in this, who would I be? And it's like, well, in terms of my physical shape, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, it's, it's, it's middle-aged character actor life goals. <laughs> but Jeffrey Wright's cool in this movie. I mean, it's cool anyway, but he wears a t-shirt that is quite snug around his belly, but it's like, you are making that work for you, Jeffrey. You are just cool in this, hanging out in Jamaica and stuff like that. I know. Which I thought was like a reference to the fact that Ian Fleming lived in Jamaica. Didn't yeah, yeah. That and, was and, and, and Dr. Knows, largely set in Jamaica. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah and also, I, I now want to see something with uh, Jeffrey Wright and J.K. Simmons in it, because they, they oh, were <laughs> together. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That would be so... And they're playing Private Eyes, who had a falling out and having to come back for a case. They're working on separate cases. The cases intertwined. They have to team up again. Oh my God. Let's just write that. <laughs> Let's write that. And it has to be Jeffrey Wright, J.K. Simmons. Oh God, that would be brilliant. Anyway, but you're right. On the side of the angels, I mean, <laughs> look at them all. Look at how splendid and wonderful they are. And they are so cool. I mean, there is a shot of Craig and Anna de Armas walking into a very, very exclusive club. And he's in his tux and she's in an evening gown. And it's like, I'm sorry, but there, that look will never, ever age. The well-fitting tux and the evening gown. It's like, that's just a perfect image. I could just watch them just walking around. <laughs> they look amazing. And Ray Fiennes looked... I mean, he looked like he'd really, really pumped up for this. He looked huge, like he'd been in the gym himself. Which is ironic, given the particular scene in this. Ah, uh, um, oh yes, indeed, yes, yeah, that's right, yes. Yes, there is a very, very funny exchange that Bond has with him. Quite a tense exchange they have that's good. But anyway, so is there anything else to say about Bond before we get into spoilers? As you say, it's going to be controversial, and we'll go into, we'll obviously go into some of the reasons why it's going to be controversial in the spoilers. I mean, if, you, if you're listening to this, then obviously, and you haven't seen the film, please tune out. We don't, you know, hit our metrics, but... Um, <laughs> Please drop, please, please, please drop off before the spoiler section because you deserve to see this unspoiled. On which note, stay off the internet. Just every place in the internet because there'll be advertising spoiler reviews in your emails. And also, I think to the points that we, that we've made already, 
some people are going to be very angry about this film and they're just going to spoil it because they're angry about it. They're just going to be complete gits. Although I, like... I saw a, a page from the spread of the Daily Mail that somebody's posted up on Twitter, you know, not a link to the actual, but they're like basically having to, obviously really conflicted because they're calling it Woke Bond and then have to go, four stars. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into spoilers then, Lashana Lynch's casting, again, it's one of those things where it's like, she was cast because she's great in that role. And I was so happy that she was in much more of the film than I thought she was going to be in. I mean, she's a major part of this film. There is also an element of like, yeah, we are going to cast a black woman as the new 007. Because we know that's a provocative move. And anybody who's got a problem with that can fuck off. <laughs> it's like, yeah, good. That made me laugh. That made me really laugh that it's like... Yeah, we are not going to try to appease the Daily Mail readers who say, no, Bond has to be a British white heterosexual man. I was trying to think, was there any controversy at the time that Pierce Brosnan was an Irishman and was cast as Bond? I don't think there was. I think it's... There was controversy around Craig because... Because he was blonde. (laughs) I mean, it was like, but as it it turns out, everyone prefers blondes. I, I, I looked it up. When he was first cast in the role, there's a site called Craig Not Bond. Yeah. And it's still going, and I went on it, and they've just basically just gone from, we don't like this actor because he's got blonde hair, let's, you know, extrapolate this whole crazy, pathetic world around why he's not good at Bond, into essentially, like, a right-wing... God. Because obviously, when 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 you're working on the premise that Craig Bond is bad, anything that really plays into that thesis is a win for me. And then when a lot of the stuff that's coming out about why they think the new film is going to be bad is essentially right wing, mm. then you essentially just end up endorsing whether or not I can't, I don't, I don't know what this person's politics are. You essentially just end up endorsing loads of right wing stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Before we get into spoilers, you are going to hear from Chris. Yes, here's our friend, Mr. Chris Carr, to give us his thoughts. And at the end of that, you'll hear the siren. Yes, you will hear the siren. Probably after the siren, we will talk for 30 seconds about how this is a spoiler section so that we, so that you have enough time to turn off. If you haven't seen Bond yet, we strongly recommend you do, and then come back and listen to what we think of it in spoilers. And thank you very much for listening thus far. If you haven't seen Bond yet, and if you have seen Bond, yeah, then cheers for listening to the whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> Our metrics need it. <laughs> Well, hi, Chris. How are things? Yeah, good, Rob. How are you doing? It's good to see you again. Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you for joining me this morning. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, um, welcome to the Movie Robcast. And again, thank you for agreeing to talk to us about No Time to Die. Yeah, what a film to be discussing. <laughs> yeah, quite. So first, uh, I guess, would you mind uh, like to say a little bit about yourself? Yeah, certainly. So um, for those who have no idea who I am, uh, my name's Chris Carr. I run a podcast called Secrets and Spies. Um, and I interview sort of real former spies, authors, experts on all things espionage. I'm slowly, slowly becoming more of an expert in espionage, but it depends on what time of the day you catch me and what topic. Um, and I also am a freelance director, so I do um, sort of commercials, web content, and I'm also the director of a short spy film called The Dry Cleaner that's uh, done quite well recently at a spy film festival called Spy Flicks, where it got an honourable mention. So that's kind of cool. 
um, and I have ambitions to uh, sort of write and direct more spy fiction in the future. And and I suppose I tend to I tend to try and err a bit on sort of realistic feeling spy fiction. So that's the kind of stuff I like that might inform my taste with the Bond film today. Indeed. So yeah, about say so given which it's probably not surprising that uh, that you're a Bond fan. Yes, yes, yeah, where it all began, really. Uh, it all began with James Bond, and then it kind of progressed to a part-time job at Waitrose, where I met a former KGB spy who became one of my regular customers. I used to sell him salmon, um, and I learned a lot about espionage through uh, this former KGB spy. So that's, a, that's a pretty cool route into things. Well, yes. <laughs> I guess, um, if we just want to dive straight in, what did you think of uh, Daniel Craig's final Bond film? Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, um you know, I'm a huge, huge fan of Casino Royale, and I still hold that Casino Royale's Daniel's best. Uh, sorry, Daniel. <laughs> I still love Casino Royale. Um, but I think No Time to Die is a good second for me, uh, for Daniel's. And then then would be Skyfall, Quantum of Solace, and then, then Spectre. We'll try not to talk too much about Spectre. But um, but uh, no, I thought No Time to Die was a very solid film. It's a great action film. Um, it's got some really great emotional beats in it. It looks beautiful. Um, and it's got so many, and it's done this well. So I, I'm, I may be a bit of a hypocrite because I sometimes get a bit wound up when you get Bond films that are overly referential to past Bond films. But somehow, No Time to Die got it right, while Spectre didn't. Um, and I've been pondering on that. Um, but I think No Time to Die, you know, there was a lot of great stuff. And, and so um, a lot of the references seem to come from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, both the film and the book, and the book of um, You Only Live Twice. Yeah, there's so much in that film. Um, and obviously, they're wrapping up Daniel's story with the connection to uh, the aforementioned Spectre and um, and uh, Blofeld and all that kind of stuff. But no, I, I, despite my not being a fan of the film Spectre, somehow this film really worked really well. And, and, and you can see um, some great writing in it as well from Phoebe Waller-Bridge. There's some nice touches in there. Uh, my wife pointed out there's one particular line that's definitely one of hers, which is mad as a bag of bees. So uh, so there we go. So maybe that's the, to sum up the film, as mad as a bag of bees. But <laughs> I, I think for me, one of the reasons why this works in homaging earlier Bond where mm. Spectre doesn't is Spectre is very dry with it. It's mm. very sort of cut and paste. Now we're doing this scene that recalls this scene. Whereas I yeah. think with no time to die it's a little bit more in the woof for example you've got the um the russian spy played by david denchik yes yeah he's great actually yeah on one hand is an original character but on the other hand mm. is very reminiscent of boris from goldeneye yes yeah i was thinking that i'm invincible yeah yes i am invincible <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for him to say it but he never did <laughs> yeah sort of comedy russian traitor yeah um and it's one of those things like he is his own character. I think because this he in within No Time to Die, others may disagree, works on his own terms mm. in a way that a lot of Spectre doesn't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, the thing is, like with Spectre, it just um, like for example that plane chase. So there's this bit. There's a nice. I was watching it again just recently, and there's a nice moment where Daniel Craig sort of does a little nod to um, is it Dave Batista, um, and it's very reminiscent of Roger Moore doing that kind of nod, like in the car chase from Your Eyes Only and stuff. That bit worked, but then as the plane chase progresses, is sort of um, when the plane kind of crashes through his building, it's very reminiscent of the Living Daylights, and it's just. I don't know, everything about that film, even the helicopter when it does the corkscrew does this sort of noise that's supposed to be similar to um, the man with the golden gun. Yeah, the card, um, yeah. 
And even, <clears throat> and I don't know if this is a conscious choice, isn't that helicopter scene? This is Spectre. Um, he had some really bad um, green screen going on. And I don't know whether that was a conscious choice or not, just to sort of hark back to some of the appalling insert shots that a lot of old Bond films suffer from. Um, and I was, I was rewatching on Her Majesty's Secret Service last night. And oh my God, the insert shots on certain scenes are terrible. <laughs> But it's it's just the technology of the time. It was back rear screen projection. Um, and it's very hard to make that look good. Uh, and nowadays we live in a world where if they get it right, it's almost flawless, really. And there's an awful lot of green screen, actually, in um, No Time to Die that's completely invisible. Um, and a, a, one bit of trivia, and I hope this is not a spoiler. So, you know, when Daniel... Um, runs off with the scientist out of Cuba. He kind of he gets this. He's given a cigar by is it Paloma? Paloma, played by Anna de Armas. Paloma, that's it. And and then they run off down this sort of alleyway. That was Daniel Craig's last ever shot as James Bond. Um, and the the city he's running into is completely CGI. So that just shows you how good it is <laughs> when it's done right. You know? Yeah, I think one of the issues about Spectre, and again, we we said we wouldn't dwell too much on Spectre, mm-hmm. um, is that yeah. It doesn't really show you anything you haven't seen before. Well, it's, it's very much like Quantum of Solace. I think Quantum of Solace is almost the same story as Spectre in some respects, and better. Um, it's just not as well executed as, you know, I think Spectre's got more, is a slightly better executed film in terms of um, editing and story structure. But I just think Quantum of Solace has more originality for and it I and it's trying to be. we're possibly more willing to forgive Quantum of Solace because there's an understanding of the difficulties that went into the production. Yeah, and it just is trying. It, I I love the Felix Leiter story in Quantum of Solace, um, and I think that if anything's the thing that kind of semi saves the film, uh, and its direct connection to Casino Royale, um, and that, oh, an amazing opera shootout. I love that bit. That's so good. That's probably the best bit of the film in some respects. Yes, and it's a it's a reasonably simple. I mean, as far as the you know compared to a lot of Bond, small scale mm. set piece, but mm. it's just executed really nicely. It is. Well, the sound design on that film's fantastic. And in fact, um, in No Time to Die, I think the sound design's probably one of the best um, in recent films. Very creative in the way they do it. It was really nice. Yes, I'd be interested to see what Oscars uh, No Time to Die is up for. I mean, it's, it's probably yeah. out of the realm of possibility that it's going to get anything on the acting front, even though Daniel well, Craig is very good. But, yeah, I mean, you'll be surprised if it didn't get a, uh, a handful of tech noms. Well, definitely. I mean, yeah, I saw... Um, I, I was reading something this morning that mentioned that, that will da- you know will Daniel Craig get a nod for best actor? It's difficult to say really because I loved his performance. I think it was fantastic. Is it an Oscar performance? I don't know. Um, but then what is an Oscar performance? I don't know. It's difficult to say really, isn't it? But it's um, yeah, it's supposed to be. At least we can be assured that he'll get a Golden Globe nom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he might. He'll probably get a BAFTA achievement. Actually, I think he already has. Hasn't he? I don't know. He'll get some sort of BAFTA nod as well. You know. I think Daniel. I, 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 honestly. This was the probably the best send off they could have given him, um, and I don't want to go into spoiler territory, but it's it's yeah, I think they did a really, I think it ties up a lot of things, and it thematically works with some of the stuff that was going on in the Bond films with Daniel Craig's interpretation, and I'm just glad they didn't go. To, I'm glad and sorry, Danny Boyle, because I do like Danny Boyle, but I'm glad they didn't go down the Danny Boyle road because, as reported, it was supposed to be a bit whimsical, which always, I'm not a fan of that. I don't like it when the filmmaker just treats it as like, oh, it's just a Bond film, doesn't really matter. That pisses me off. Um, and when a director doesn't take it seriously, it's just really frustrating. And I think with Danny Boyle, I think, you know, watching what he did at the Olympics, it was great for the Olympics, but would it be great for a whole film? You know, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. With, with Danny Boyle, I have 
very i've got quite specific feelings about mm. what they should do with bond mm. next yeah my, my attitude is that for this film you needed somebody who could just also just thread the needle on making a bond film yeah who could who yeah. could execute which is not to say that carrie fukunaga doesn't have his own vision it's a very well mm. shot film but yeah. that ultimately he can do what he's willing to commit to doing mm. what a bond film requires well, I don't think he treats himself as above a Bond film. I think Carrie Fukunaga genuinely is a Bond fan. And I think he's a Bond fan of the Timothy Dalton era, judging by his age and some of the little Timothy Dalton references in the film. There's quite a lot of License to Kill. There is, which is, and, and to, to the audience, License to Kill is my favourite Bond film. It's not necessarily the best Bond film, but it's my favourite. So I think, you know, Carrie Fukunaga is obviously a, a Timothy Dalton fan and of that era, and he's a James Bond fan, and he knows what makes an action film tick. And there are quite a few directors out there who are brilliant directors of character-based pieces, and somebody gives them an action film. And I think sometimes they either don't know what to do with it, or sometimes they see themselves a bit above it and don't quite understand the how you piece an action scene together, you know, and pace uh, an action film. Because obviously Kerry Fukunaga is only in charge of the A unit, whilst the, it's the second unit who do the action. But he he obviously sets the tone for what they want, how they want it. He signs off on everything. Same with, like, Sam Mendes. He, they reshot some of the second unit stuff because it didn't quite fit with the tone of what they were after. Um, so that's where the A unit director or the first unit director will kind of put their stamp on things. Um, so, yeah, I think he did an excellent job. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the first series of True Detective. I think he did a really good job on that. And I love Beasts of No Nation, which is a fantastic film. And he actually shot, I didn't realise, he was actually the cinematographer as well as director on that film. Beasts of No Nation, that was sort of the first Netflix original movie. Yeah, that's it, it with Idris Elba. That was a bit critically underappreciated. Mm, mm, yeah, I guess because, I mean... I think it's one of those that's kind of grown in reputation since then. Yeah. But at the time, there was a bit of an attitude of, oh, what's Netflix doing getting into mm. this? This feels, you know, this feels very arty. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, my helicopter's back. Hang on. Spectre, they're buzzing me. <laughs> just let it pass as it gets past the vibration. It's just vibrating my desk. Hang on. I'll buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Blofeld's flying around. Oh, I learned a bit about the stainless steel reference. So I was talking to somebody. So I, after the screening, I bumped into a load of um, members of the online James Bond community. So I met some of the guys from James Bond Radio, Chris and um, Tom. And I met uh, AJ Chowdhury, who's the author of Some Kind of Hero. And um, so the whole stainless steel thing's a reference to the mafia, apparently. Apparently in the uh, 70s and 80s, um, a lot of mafia people had stainless steel kitchens, and that was a big status symbol. Um, and I joked, maybe that's because it's easy to get the blood off the off the side, I don't know. But um, So that might explain why Blofeld offers, or not quite Blofeld, but Blofeld, Blofeld in vision but not name, offers James Bond the kitchen in stainless steel. <laughs> I love that bit. And Oh, here's a weird tidbit. So... Um, so John Glenn, who directed Fear Eyes Only, and that was his first Bond film. If you notice, all of John Glenn's films have fantastic aircraft sequences. And I didn't realise until recently, he was a member of the RAF um, back in the day. He did his service in the RAF, so that might explain why all the John Glenn Bond movies have some sort of really cool sequence involving an aircraft. So with Fear Eyes Only, it was the helicopter 
then we have the octopus after that with the fight on the um the twin um the twin beach aircraft um then you've got the uh you know the blimp business with beautiful kill which i love has led to a lifelong obsession with airships um then you've got the the fight on the hercules um during the living daylights and then obviously license to kill that fantastic sequence involving the um lifeguard helicopter um, and now i can't not see the Dolphin 2 helicopter, which was the one that was used in License to Kill. Every time I see one, hear that engine note, it makes me think of License to Kill. So that's how nerdy I am. But <laughs> So thank you, John Glenn. Well, was there anything else you sort of wanted to sort of touch on? Um, not really. I mean, I just, I don't know if you, whether you want to talk about, obviously I'm in the non-spoiler bit. One thing I will say, if this helicopter will let me, this might be, um, so this James Bond film might be, what um, for the Bond community, what Brexit was for British people. It's the real Marmite Bond movie because I I saw some very visibly upset and hung out with some very upset Bond fans after the film. While it, it whilst other Bond fans absolutely loved it, so it's it's a really interesting. It's been very divisive among the um, quote unquote Bond community. Um, so it'd be interesting to see. But then I, I I've got friends who are who like Bond films but are not wouldn't consider themselves like hardcore Bond fans across the world. So I've got a friend who's just um watched it in Tokyo and she was telling me they've just come out of lockdown after six months it was their first weekend out she went to see the James Bond film absolutely loved it so for a Japanese woman in Tokyo this James Bond film really hit all the right notes so you know yeah I mean coming out coming out of lockdown it's a lot of cinema if you go into the cinema for the first time yeah Two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, so. well, coming out of lockdown for me, my first film was Goldeneye. I um, purposely booked Goldeneye at the Prince Charles Cinema. I ended up at Duke's uh, Cocktail Bar and had a few vodka martinis before the film <laughs> and turned my return to cinema into a real vent and to see Piers Brosnan jump off the dam as my first image out of lockdown. I thought that was a pretty good place to restart my uh, cinema relationship with cinema, you know. <laughs> So no, so look, um, no time to die. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I, you know, would highly recommend it to anybody who's a Bond fan. And you know, I think it's it's a really just solid film in its own right, and it's um, it's got some amazing sequences in it as well. So um, yeah, and some great humour. I love. I actually think this is um, the strongest film for Ben Whishaw as Q. Um, there were some really nice moments there, and even M. Uh, Ray Fiennes as M. I think he has quite a good story there. And an obsession with um, bulldog clips in this film, I noticed. So there we go. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for joining us, for coming on Pleasure. board. Um, you know, as uh, given you a bit of an authority on all things spy, it's... Yeah. Um, yeah, thank no, you very pleasure. much. That was really good. Um, I was just trying to think if there was anything uh, spy factual I could throw in for you, but I can't think of anything other than uh, obviously the film itself's quite timely with its what the villain's plot is. Yeah, but it's uh, no, it was really good. <laughs> okay, Chris, but before we finish up, would you mind, uh, would you like to plug your pluggables? Yeah, certainly. So, so if you want to connect with me, um, I'm on Twitter. If you go to at Secrets and Spies, that's the Twitter podcast. You can also go to chriscar.co.uk. So that's Chris, C-H-R-I-S, car, C-A-R-R.co.uk. And that's my main website that kind of houses everything that I do from my directing work to my podcast. Um, and the podcast itself is just Secrets and Spies and is on all, all the platforms. It's a little bit shit on YouTube, I apologize. But other than that, it's everywhere else. <laughs> Well, we're not on YouTube, so no. chances are they'll be listening. So, so you can listen to it wherever you are, uh, yeah. wherever you're listening to this. Yeah, on Apple and all that. It's, it's, yeah, it's very popular on Apple. Looking at the stats from uh, most of my listeners are from Apple. So, <laughs> so thank you for having me, Rob. It's been great. That's great, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much. My pleasure.
Right, so you are now in the no time to die spoiler section. There are spoilers. If you haven't seen the film, go see the film, then come back and listen to this. Both those things are important. Go see the film, then come back and listen to this. Do not listen to this if you haven't seen the film yet, because honestly, we would feel bad if we thought that you had heard anything by accident, because we don't want to spoil this film for anyone. So, talking about using Bond and 007 interchangeably, you see all the M's as paintings, as portraits on the wall, and it's like, obviously the idea that Bond, you know, is a fan theory about Bond being a code name that's been passed, and that explains why Judy Dench's M is with Pierce Brosnan and with Daniel Craig, but that was just a moment where it's like, oh, you guys are really enjoying teasing the fans of this one. So yeah, so getting into spoilers, so the biggest spoiler I think that we didn't want to give away is that Anna de Armas isn't really in this very much, and I was really, really surprised by that. I thought she was going to be in the entire movie, and she did it, I think, for 15 minutes or so. She has a scene with Bond in Cuba, and in some ways it was my favourite bit of the film, because it's just, one, it's all based around a great action scene. It's based around a really, really good Spectre meeting. Yeah where there is just an eye being carried around. It's really weird and, like, odd. uh, It's very kind of, like, there's a touch of, like, eyes wide shut. There's Um, definitely a touch of that, yeah. uh, But also, like, my question is, obviously, we've seen the henchman using that eye earlier, and it's now being used so that Blofeld can view the proceedings remotely from his cell. It's Uh, a bionic eye. Yeah, bionic eye. And that ends up being used as a plot device later. Does Spectre only have one artificial eye? Yeah. Is this like a beta version and and you've only got this one prototype? Because it seems as if you have the resources to buy more than one eye. You have to take his eye out when you have a meeting. Or is this just part of the ritual? Is this this a sex thing? Probably. I'm so on board with that. (laughs) But it was so great because it was on a cushion, wasn't it? Like a velvet cushion and it was being carried around by one guy. Oh, it's definitely a sex thing. Yes. And it was carried around by this weird bald guy who was flanked by a couple of other weird bald guys. It just had like a ritual to it that I thought, this is great, this is what Spectre is. Spectre's just weird. It's the richest people in the world. And as we all know, the richest people in the world are just fucking weird because they can afford to be. Yeah, you would walk around with a bionic eye so your big overlord could just see the entire thing from his prison cell. That just seemed like what Bond was when I was a kid. Like, yeah, you only live twice has a certain just weirdness to it in the Donald Pleasance performance as Blofeld that I thought was being carried over here. But Anna de Armas is in that bit, and I thought, oh, I thought you were going to be in the whole film. Yeah, after a certain point, she just goes, goodbye. And it's like, oh, that's nice. But there's a really, really good bit, isn't it, where Bond says to her, what's her name in this? Her name is Paloma. Paloma. Because Bond says at the end of their encounter, you were excellent. Yes, that's Bond saying that, but that's also Daniel Craig saying that. To a friend of his. Yeah. Because, you know, as you said, they were in Knives Out together. And you have to think that Daniel Craig played quite a big part in saying she needs to be yeah. in this film as well. If so, then it was a great call because she's so brilliant. And it's so much part of the trailer that I think you're led to believe that she's going to be in the whole film. But yeah, she is excellent. And they clearly had a ball doing that, it has to be said, great action scene. But Lashana Lynch is in that action scene as well. It, it brings a lot of the main players in, in a very clever way. God, that seems great. And so also talking about um, You Only Live Twice, um, and, and Chris might have already mentioned this in the section that we've just recorded with him, is that the Poison Garden, Saffron's Poison Garden, is, and in fact big parts of the final villain's base are very um, much from You Only Live Twice, the novel. Right. As is Bond's attempting to kill Blofeld. Like, they kill off Blofeld, but then again, they don't need him anymore. Why doesn't the front of the container they've got him in have glass? Yeah, They've so literally got him in a cage, but the cage is missing a bit. 
but it does wreck on the fact that they're not actually brothers, which was very good. Glad they got rid of that bit of nonsense from Spectre. If you've been, if you've been related to him, it's like, that's good. Nobody I, liked that. I thought that the Blofeld scene was very good. And has Felix died by that point? Felix has died by that yeah, point. Yeah, so that point. Oh yeah, also Felix dies. <laughs> yes. I thought, all oh, right, so Felix has died. Of course, it's fine because this is very, very the end of a particular telling of Bond. Because you're listening to this bit, so you all know, at the end of the film, Bond dies. So really, everyone can go in this one. But yeah, the fact that Felix Leiter died, I thought, oh, okay, right, so that's, oh, that's a shame. But then when Blofeld got it as well, it was like, Okay, so you are, house, yeah. you, you are really setting out your stall here in terms of, yes, we're going to clean house. This is the final chapter of a particular era of Bond. We can do whatever we want. With and the, they do. With the major spoiler that you've just given, I'm now looking forward to inevitably a future season of Alan Partridge where this comes up. The fact that Bond gets it in this, I think, is the reason why a lot of people are going to hate it. And it's like, well... But it's the final chapter of a particular You've already telling. had him go off into the sunset. You can't have him do that again. And the way that it's set up is like, well, he's just been infected. But, you know, Saffron's just infected him with the nanobots that essentially mean that he can never come in contact with Madeline or Matilda. He's, he, Matilda, sorry, he's got a daughter. I have a friend whose daughter is named the same thing as Bond's daughter. And therefore, by transitive property... Because he's he's Bond. It's like, Bond is the father of X. My friend is also the father of X. Therefore, my friend is Bond. Yeah, which... right. And I think he would say, yeah, there is no flaw to that logic. And I always suspected. Yeah, but that's the thing. They do some really, really big things here. And to all those people that say, you can't end a Bond film like that. He, you can't kill Bond. It's like, well, you've had 24 films. And also, it was one of those things, one of the cliches of Bond is like, oh, you would never be able to get out of that. You would never be able to do that. Like, yeah, the James Bond finish is known because it's so preposterous that it's just in time. It's like one of those things where, yeah, one out of 25, I think you could just have a go at it, right? Just to see how it works. And I thought it worked. Well, actually, I thought it worked very well. But because I was thinking, are they going to do it? I was actually quite distracted towards the end of the film because it was like, okay, right, well, they've set up everything to say that they can do this because he's got a daughter, so he's going to live on through her. So, yeah, sorry to say, the thing about him not seeing his, not being able to see Madeline or Matilda anymore. Matilda, or touch them. Matilda, or touch them. That's a horrible, horrible, ironic punishment. But Zoom is a thing. Yeah, there is. Yeah. They hadn't really understood the pandemic was coming. That's right. It probably wasn't, but there's part of me that feels like the original version of this, it was a virus. And they, and they had to go and do some research because they're like, we can't have it be a virus. It needs to be something that works like a virus, but it can't be a virus. Nanobots. Yeah, nanobots. We'll make it be nanobots. If that is, then that is a, some major, major surgery on this film because the nanobots thing actually works really well because the whole thing about the virus in this film is that it is a synthetic virus made in a lab, I think, in Wuhan, was it? <laughs> Not that. But M has had a hand in it because it was supposed to be a safe and effective and surgically precise weapon so that if you are not related, because it's all based on a person's DNA, so therefore it will only affect the person with the coding for that particular shot that they've been given. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things in here that now tie into COVID and everything that we've been through. But I thought it was actually a very, very interesting story point. So if you came up with that because you had to reshoot, then well done to you and you all earn your money because that's a very, very clever way. That's just a really interesting idea that you created something to be a very, very surgical weapon that then 
obviously has been completely compromised and uh, corrupted by the Bond villain and his little henchman. Although I'm not sure I bought that the M who was so that's so objected to Nine Eyes, the surveillance program from Spectre, would then go on to design this. Yeah, or, or have is, a hand in this. M, I think, would have seen the potentials for it to be used in other ways than what they were intending it to be used for and would have seen how dangerous that was and I think would have basically killed it at the development stage. Yeah, there are some things in this film, like at the beginning with Bond, it's like, I just think you would question what you're being told now about the fact that Madeline has betrayed you and that she's part of Spectre, because it's like, I don't think that I... You also went somewhere you would, that, that... You would question that more, I think. You also <clears throat> yeah, went somewhere that you would conceivably go. So it's like... Yeah. Is yeah, it, yeah. They knew that you were going to potentially turn up at some point. Yeah, because yeah, he goes to Vesperlin's yeah. grave, doesn't he? And that bit when that bomb goes off, that did really surprise me. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was not <laughs> expecting <laughs> what? Yeah, it just happens before you know it, really. And yeah, as we've got into the virus now, there is the film was pushed back because it was at the start of what looked like it could be a pandemic. Turned out it was. And it was a film called No Time to Die, which seems quite insensitive as a title when it's obvious that a lot of people were going to die. And also a film where it's like, oh, if you come in contact, physical contact with your family and you're infected with this thing, you can kill them. That's right, yes. And if you attend a funeral, then you might also die. (laughs) Because I just thought, okay, right, so yeah, you can't release a film with that title at this time because a lot of people are going to die. It goes so much more than that, doesn't it? I mean, the parallels. And because the parallels are so deep at some point, I don't think there was a lot of rewriting on this or reshooting. And if there were, then it would be interesting to see the original. Because it's like, well, what was it called COVID in the original then? Well, it's mostly, as you said, as I think you said last night, around product placement. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that they... Um, and it's fascinating because the Bond films reportedly make $250 million before they start to shoot in terms of all the products and all the sponsorship in there. So, yeah, so Heineken's in there again. We see him drinking beer. Yeah, he has a watch that looks very nice. Um, he uses... A Nokia. That's right, yeah. And it's like, I just don't think that Bond would use a Nokia phone. But he does. But then I thought, well, actually, maybe he would because he would know something about it. Or maybe it's easy, because from Casino Royale, we see that he's a bit of a computer whiz. Maybe he can customise it better than, like, an iPhone or something. So the car that he drives at the end, is that like a new Aston Martin or something? I think so. Yeah. And that's the part that I thought, that was definitely a reshoot. That is a newer car than what they originally shot. Because yeah, they had to go back because suddenly Bond would be using last year's model for a lot of things, which is absolutely fascinating. It's also the reason why this film could never go onto a streaming platform. Because when you buy the Bond license, you have a massive exposure at theatrical, a massive exposure when it goes on to home end. And even when it goes on to regular telly, there's still going to be something there as well. So if all that goes away because it just gets plonked onto Amazon Prime as another film, then all those sponsors will say, well, I want my money back now. I love the idea that they've got a perpetual licensing agreement so that every single year they have to go back and reshoot those scenes with the newest model. With the newest model. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> and, and, but obviously the marketing budget just decreases and decreases and decreases. So all of a sudden, like you've got a, you've got a shot in the film of a hand that's clearly not Daniel Craig in a place that's clearly not the location picking up the latest phone. <laughs> that's a dog's paw. <laughs> we just couldn't get Craig, so we just went to Battersea. It turns out the audience is more willing to forgive these blatant inserts if it's a dog. That's right. Yeah. If the listeners can hear something in the background now, it's because we're recording this a little bit later. And it's really raining and there's some drumming on the ceiling. So that would be the slight thudding if there's a thudding in the background. Yes, try to read it as atmospheric rather than annoying. It is atmospheric. (laughs) 
if we get if we get any reviews on the podcast now describing the podcast itself as being atmospheric, it's going to be like, oh, that's hurtful. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't call it annoying. I'd call it atmospheric. <laughs> oh, okay. One good thing that you mentioned here is that there is a clip, a very quick clip from The Wrong Trousers, the Wallace and Gromit film. And you've got a really good theory for why that's in there. Well, a while back, Patrick Willems, who is a sort of film critic, you know, he's very popular on YouTube, did, um, I think he calls it his blue, one of his blue light specials, where he looked at what makes an action scene work. And, you know, so good action scene, bad action scene. And the bad action scene was uh, the opening car chase from Quantum of Solace. And the good action scene was the Feathers McGraw uh, attempted escape at the end of The Wrong Trousers. And the fact that they literally have that just just a brief clip playing on Madeline's TV when she's a kid. No, is it, yeah, yeah playing on Madeline's TV when she's a kid of the end of that sequence. And it's like, given that it was Bond commentary, sorry, given that it was Bond adjacent, it feels too much of a coincidence that that wasn't deliberate. I didn't put it together when I saw that. I just thought, well, that's interesting. They just had a shot from the wrong trousers there. When you mentioned it, it's like, that fits so perfectly that I can't imagine that isn't the case. I think you might be right on that. And if so, then very well spotted and very well connected. And I should probably tweet it at Patrick Williams because there's a good chance he won't have seen it. Uh, no, I can't, don't, don't want to spoil it for him. Okay, then. Well, let's wait until a day after, two days after it's been released and then see if he said anything. Because I think you're right. And they would have had to have licensed that clip as well to put it in there. And if it is that, and the Patrick Williams video essay has influenced the new Bond film then he is going to have all of his Christmases come at once, isn't he? I mean, that's not a bad level of influence. And also, it's a very, very good video essay. Although I don't think the Quantum of Solace car chase is half as incoherent as he says it is. He does come out with some very, very good points about how it could have been better. So, yeah. Although the wrong trousers chase is great. So, <laughs> Well, he's absolutely right in the fact that the wrong trousers chase is one of the great chase scenes of all cinema. And it's only like a 29-minute film. And it's much more exciting than the chase in Quantum of Solace here. Oh, this is how you shoot action. I guess, is that one of the benefits of claymation? It's obviously very ponderous to do, but you're going to plan your bloody shots. Yeah, but I think it's one of those where you could, I mean, they could easily do, there's no reason why every chase scene in every animation, or every film really now, shouldn't be as exciting as that, because that was done almost 30 years ago. It was done 28 years ago, and it's absolutely fantastic. That bit when uh, Gromit is laying out the track as he's passing over it, <laughs> because he's run out of track and is having to set the track as the train's moving, is phenomenal. Maybe potentially a bit easier to animate, because he's doing it so quickly, they're probably only having to have it animate every other frame, or something like... I'm, I think that might have been like, you know, six frames a second or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, there's no 24 frames a second happening there. But yeah, it is just so brilliant. Uh, I've also spoken to my friend uh, Ian Kinane, cool. who is a uh, who is a an authority in Bond. Genuinely, he lectures on, and he didn't enjoy the film. Uh, for So he lectures on Bond, sorry? Yeah, he lectures on Bond. And in what capacity does he lecture on? Uh, let me look him up. He's a senior lecturer in English literature at the University of Roehampton. And... He's the founding editor of the International Journal of James Bond Studies, the first online open access research journal of wow. James Bond. Oh, we should put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, and and yeah, he said some very interesting things, some of which actually we might talk a little bit more about some of the criticisms in this section. Not least one of them, I knew that the electronic eye that we've talked about, I, something was on the tip of my brain and I couldn't quite figure out why that seemed familiar to me. It's because back in the early 2000s there was a PS2 game called GoldenEye Rogue Agent in which essentially an MI6 agent goes rogue 
and it gets outfitted with this electronic eye and it's it's very hokey it's not one of the great it's not one of the best bond games but it's very much in line with that the idea that this eye with sort of cyber wizardry untold capabilities okay weird if that's the thing that you're homaging i mean maybe maybe i'm making was a fan of that in his youth it could be yeah it's a good spot though i would never have got that i played the golden eye game for the n64 and Tomorrow Never Dies, which was also a good game. Tomorrow Never Dies was a, was a, was, yeah, was a good game. Did you ever play... Oh, yeah. I think I played The Living Daylights for the Spectrum in the 80s, but that was it. Oh, yeah. Did, so you never played Nightfire? No, I didn't heard of that Which one. had like a great multiplayer map across this kind of... In this, this ski resort and there's a big there's a big canyon. Or James Bond Everything or Nothing, which actually... You know, which was actually kind of a new Pierce Brosnan story. And they brought back... I remember they brought back Jaws... It worked well enough. It's of that kind of PS2 era of tying games, mm. where graphically not not outstanding, but like fun to play. Yeah, so gameplay was good. Okay, Goldeneye. I played that with a friend so much that we knew the maps off by heart. And then when we would play a two-player game against someone else, when it would split the screen into like you know where they above. were based on. By where they were moving, I would navigate my character based on their location, looking at their bit of the screen because I knew how which, to get which, there. Which you're, not, which you're not meant to do. Apparently, it's bad etiquette. Not that I. And it was bad etiquette because um, the person who I kept doing it to got really annoyed. How did you get there so quickly? It's like because I've committed this entire game to memory because and because I'm playing blow. And it's because I'm playing on job. <laughs> that's the thing is that I handicapped myself by only having a handgun and I think he had it was a rifle I thought that was it yeah that was the one that could kill you with one shot but you were so were you but were using the golden gun which could also kill you in one no shot. it was I, I I gave myself the least powerful gun just to give him a chance but he had no chance to be honest it was one of those things it was also like a real brag it's like look I've got I've basically got a butter knife here and you're still not getting a shot off <laughs> he loved it but yeah my friend Dave regular listen to the podcast hello dave he bought an n64 just for goldeneye and i was so bemused by that so, so you bought a computer console or like a video games console just for a single game and he said yeah i did yeah but you've not played the game yet he said just stay here and let me set it up and then as soon as i played it, it was like i totally understand that you've made the best decision i think anyone has ever made in their life this is amazing i did buy a playstation 5 mainly so i could play cyberpunk 2077 which i bought for the ps4 and was unplayable <laughs> yes when a game is done right you will buy the means to play the game so what else did ian say hi ian i don't know if you'll ever listen to this but if you are yeah i'm going to regurgitate some of your thoughts here because i don't necessarily agree with the conclusions you came to but i think that the points that you made were very good he was very critical of Safin. He didn't think Safin necessarily worked as a villain. We did kind of, I think, touch on the fact that his motivations are very hazy. In terms of, I would love to know who he's targeting with the nanobots. Yeah, that doesn't. He doesn't get into that. He's, he's just, just kind of, of a generic swathe, like a, a swathe of humanity, an unspecified swathe of humanity. And it's not even that original because Moonraker. You know, that's the plot of Moonraker, isn't it? With the remind me the villain's name, Hugo Drax. Hugo Drax in Moonraker. But ah, he does. Mr. Bond, you return with the tedious inevitability of an unloved season. Is that your favourite Bond line? Uh, it has to be. It's, 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 it's wonderful. Uh, he also, I think this is one of his criticisms of Craig's tenure. He likes uh, Ray Fiennes, Naomi Harris, and Ben Wisher in their roles, but they're kind of obliged to be there for the climax, even if they can't be. So he doesn't. He doesn't like the you know. Oh, you've got Keanu earpiece. 
I would have preferred if that was Miss Moneypenny, if she'd have stayed something of an agent, because I think I would have liked Naomi Harris to have had more to do in this. I think she was kind of benched just in the fact that she had become a personal assistant. And because this, I think that the Craig years have been very good. And I think a lot of that is down to Daniel Craig as a producer saying, this is not going to be like old Bonds. The women are not going to be window dressing. They're going to have some real input into the story. The one misstep there seems to be that Miss Moneypenny goes from being a field agent to choosing to sit behind a desk and and become a PA. And that's in Skyfall, which is one of the best of the Bond films. At the time, it was like, okay, so M is now being played by a man. So Ray Fiennes is great, and I do love him as M, but he is being played by a man. And Miss Moneypenny has decided to step out of the field and behind a desk to be just a PA to M. That does seem like a bit of a step backwards. Also... I guess it may be slightly different if you're an agent in the field. The civil service does not have a great career development track if she's still doing it. I don't know, maybe she loves her job and she's invaluable to M and he's managed to keep her. He's paying her a really decent salary and she thinks she's doing good work. On the other hand, you think she might have progressed. And that's the thing is that because what we see her do as Miss Moneypenny is no way different from what Lois Maxwell was doing. And what Lois Maxwell was doing, you got the impression, was basically sorting out M's calendar and uh, bringing him coffee and stuff. And it doesn't really suggest that Naomi Harris is doing more than that. I know she has a bit to do at the end of Spectre, but that goes into your mate Ian's point about how they're obliged to be there for the climax, even if what they're doing doesn't really have any impact on the plot or actually isn't what their character would be doing. I think that's a good point about Q. There is some of the gadgetry there, but I think it actually would have been better if it was Moneypenny doing what she was doing at the beginning of Skyfall, which was basically talking him through the mission, if she does that at the end. I mean, it would be one of those things where he seems to die whenever she does that for him. But anyway. I think I would have preferred, actually, if the earpiece had cut out completely very early on and you hadn't got it till right up to the point, potentially even the point where he goes up on the roof. Well, there's a point there. uh, So our friends at the Honeymoon Period podcast, so Hello Mark and Elaine... Mark made a very good point that when the EMP goes off and blows up the bionic eye, why doesn't it blow out the earpiece? And it's like, yeah, I was so happy and laughed so much at that eye, (laughs) the eye blowing up that I didn't even think about that. But that's a very good point. It didn't really bother me that much when I heard. I thought, yeah, that is a good point. It should have done that. I'm not particularly bothered by that. But I think you're right. That would have been if the earpiece had cut out and Bond had been on his own until the end when he gets outside and, I don't know, for some reason it starts working again, that might have resonated a bit more. Yeah. I really like this film. Casino Royale and Skyfall are still the best of the Grey Gears, I think. I don't know. I potentially prefer this to Skyfall. Oh, no. 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 I, Foolishness. I, I, no, I, I don't know. Why? That's <laughs> terrible of me to just completely dismiss you. I think this resonated more with me emotionally than Skyfall did because Skyfall's got Judy Dench's death is genuinely impactful. But in terms of old Bonds going back to his family home, the franchise isn't really interested in that as an actual in exploring that as an actual trauma. We know it had an impact on his life because you kind of understand the psychology because we're all familiar with the kind of with the books. But when he goes home, it's like okay, so Bond's gone home. It's nice. It's a great location, and it's, it's lovely to see Albert Finney. Yeah. But it doesn't. We don't. It doesn't actually provide that much insight into Bond's characters. Like oh, we've gone back to where it all started for him. And Silver's there, and but he's not. But Silver's not really Bond's demon. Silver's 
M's demon, and Bond's just kind of standing in his way. Yeah. So, uh, and the personal stakes there are very much, you know, Bond protecting M, as opposed to, and Bond's not, you know, Bond burns down the old place, which, you know, fair enough. It's not quite as thematically resonant for me as I think some people found it. Skyfall is one of my favourites because it does the impossible. It celebrates the character of James Bond as a wonderful creation, which I think he is. I think it is it's a fascinating creation in terms of what he's meant to Brits throughout the decades. And it celebrates him in that Olympic year. It entirely understands how you can celebrate the character of James Bond without slipping into nationalism. To really celebrate the best things about being British without becoming... Nigel Farage, and I think it really gets the icon that is James Bond in a way that wasn't in this film. And is it Tennyson that's being read as he's yes. running down, as he's running down towards Whitehall or whatever it is? It's like that that entire scene. I thought this this is it. This is one of the very best moments of a Bond film because this is absolutely celebrating him, and it's not nationalistic, but it is allowing Brits to kind of just say there are reasons to be proud to be British and James Bond is one of them and and being paired with this particular reading of Judy Dench doing a reading from Tennyson and the reason why she's doing it within the film oh my god it's just, it's just a perfect moment of cinema although it is you know and again I, it's, it's it's lovely and I don't want to undermine that it is built off the back of a very post dark night and I literally as I said off the back of Blowfight when you go You've only caught me because I wanted you to, even though this doesn't actually make any logical sense because I haven't actually acquired any information by being here. Yeah, indeed. I I think when we come back to watching the Daniel Craig Bond films, internal logic isn't going to be the mainstay of them. Primarily, I think, because they had to change a lot of it because a lot of it wasn't really resonating with audiences. I mean, Spectre still should have been the big bad in this film. The fact that Remy Malek is the villain in this film is only because they got Blofeld wrong and Blofeld didn't land with audiences the way that he was supposed to and people just weren't interested in that from Spectre. And I think they panicked and said, well, we can't have him now be the nemesis. We're going to have to bring in a new person. But to be completely honest, we're not interested in that. We're more interested in Bond's internal demon, um, inner demons and his conflicts and stuff like that. So therefore, Rami Malek as a character, is he's as big a MacGuffin as his plot to take over the world. And that is a failing of this film, the fact that that the Bond villain is just a bit of a no-mark. I think, because Christoph Waltz as Blofeld must have seen like such a a win, such a gimme, such, you know, here's this beloved actor, he's won two Oscars, you know, he's got that kind of, he's evil, you know, he can do evil, but playful, and he's, he's got that presence... And I think in the same way, and I think I, I think Rami Malek is good in this. Actually, I like him much more in this than I like him in Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, but that's saying nothing. Why do you like him in this? I thought in this, it's like, well, you are giving a very subdued reading of this that could be seen as interesting if you had more screen time. But I think you are underplaying it to try and make this character interesting purely because I don't think there is a character here. I did like how underplayed it was. There's something, I think, I don't know if I said it earlier in this, um, potentially, he's very Cobra-like. And I think there are some subtleties of performance, if not character in there. You're not doing very much, but I'm enjoying watching you. Okay. And although it's like, you know, again, a bit like Christoph Waltz, it's like, you know, celebrated actor who has won Oscar becomes next Bond villain because... No, that's fair enough. You know, as a rule, if you have Rami Malek in your film, then yeah, as a producer, I feel your boots. I'm still on the whole. I know we just spent a bit of time criticizing it, and also the fact that M 
does what he does and you know he's responsible for the creation of the threat and never gets any sort of comeuppance when they first reveal that especially because bond's really going at him and it's suggesting that bond that that m is somehow diminished and corrupted and i was thinking are they going to kill m is that part of this is m getting a redemptive arc in this but he's not like judy dench's m where it's like this thing from the past is com- well actually very much like m judy dench's m this thing from the past is coming out coming back to get you it's f- flawed in, in in a lot of ways but I still really enjoyed it. I was invested in it. I like the fight sequences. I like the performances. And I think one of the issues is my friend Ian made the complaint that kind of it plays into the Daniel Craig. It has to be the big resonant thematic final installment for Daniel Craig's send off. And is that necessarily, you know, and it's in the same way they, again, going back to Doctor Who, they, they do it a lot of the time, Doctor Who. David Tennant's final line is, I don't want to go. And it worked at the time, but it doesn't really work in terms of the Doctor. It's clearly, you know, Daniel, it's clearly David Tennant being like, actually genuinely not wanting to go and it introduces something to the doctor that doesn't necessarily work in terms of his arc right oh no it's right in terms of i guess a particular reading of the character but in this case i think we put too much on bond i think ever since daniel craig started in casino royale was so good we took we, like bond's gone from being a really fun well-made action series with an iconic character who kind of sells the whole premise to this needs to be the best film. This needs to be like a genuinely awesome movie that can hold up. And I'm sure Ian might well disagree with me and say that a lot of them, you know, even prior to that were that. And they are obviously clearly beloved and they are iconic and I've got a deep affection for them. But they're gone. They're not required to have that emotional impact. Again, you know, on a Majesty's Secret Service, etc., there are Bond films that do play with that. But Daniel Craig's... It's prestige Bond. It's, it's you know, what when you have to make a Bond film and you have to make a prestige film. Yeah, and that's... Sorry, go on. So it's just incredibly difficult. I think you're right. That's a really good point. I would say that I think M doesn't have a comeuppance because there's a really good scene on the South Bank with Bond and M where M is his own comeuppance. He realises the terrible mistake that is made and clearly no amount of punishment is going to be worse than how much he is chastising himself. And I thought that Ray Fine sold that very well. So I didn't think that there needed to be a comeuppance there. I think you're right in terms of there is a real weight now that Bond is such event cinema that it would actually be maybe one of the worst things to happen in the world if there was a bad Bond film. And when there is a bad Bond film, it is one of the worst things to happen. It's like... This didn't used to be like this. I grew up on Bond being fun. And also the expectation that you know, the new Bond film wasn't going to be the best film you were going to see that year. Roger Moore Bond films were campy fun. I and mean, if it wasn't Bond, we wouldn't necessarily be talking about that many of them now. Like a lot of them are, they're really well-made action films, and this might be blasphemous. But there is, if it was that film somehow operating outside the Bond formula, it would be much more disposable. One of the things I always thought was really interesting was that when Bond was very, very popular during the 80s, those films were directed by John Glenn, who I think, I could be wrong here, but I think he was like a second unit director who was bumped up to be the director because he could handle the action so well. It's now become a big thing about who's going to be the next director of the Bond film. And that's, I think, what you're talking about. That's one of the issues here is that it's like, it has to be such a name director so the fact that Sam Mendes did Skyfall and then had to be coaxed back for Spectre because it would be terrible if we didn't get this huge director back for the next Bond film. And it's like, 
Well, John Glenn was doing these. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it has... There's a lot of pressure put on the new Bond films that I think have taken them away from, well, yeah, mission a movie, a fun mission a movie. And to your point about these are disposable, yeah, for your eyes only, if that wasn't a Bond film, that would not be remembered. It's a good enough action movie, but it wouldn't be remembered. My question now, though, is if you go back to a mission a movie and you do take some of the pressure off... Is the danger that you now get eclipsed by other franchises? Even with the Bond name, you're now, you know, if you go back and if you make a Bond movie in the present day that's just a fun Bond movie, you're just doing Kingsman. Well, I would say that you're very close to Mission Impossible. And those, I think they strike the right amount of story that continues while also having a fresh story every time. It's like you don't need to have seen the previous films to understand this. I think with these Bond films, with the Craig era Bond films, you kind of do. And that's a problem because if you if you saw this one without seeing Spectre, you'd be like, "Why isn't Bond doing a mission?" That's right. Why is he off with this random lady? And um, he seems very cuddly and relaxed. <laughs> that's right. Why are we seeing a cozy Bond? It's open to debate how wise it was to have a psychological reading of Bond, who was always a character who was there to basically act as wish fulfillment for men. <laughs> um, well, that's the thing. He's a pulp hero, and he's a pulp hero. And that's right. That's not to take anything away from. You know, the flame the books are very well written. But in, they're pulp. It, it, but pulp. In the same way that, like, you know, and actually, weirdly, the uh, then being no glass in the Blofeld prison, there's a very similar thing that's played as a twist in the final episode of Sherlock. Right. And it's like, yeah, you can do a you can do a psychological reading of Sherlock, but you reach a cutoff point because you're trying to introduce depth, psychological depth to these characters after the fact. The fact they weren't conceived to have this facet. They were conceived to carry the necessary plot and be engaging and interesting enough and you know, and, and sort of have that iconicity. And afterwards, you're trying to excavate this well of depth out underneath them. And there's the real danger that they can just collapse into it. I think that happens with Sherlock. I mean, I really didn't like Sherlock in the end. I thought that the first couple were okay, but I thought, one, it was insufferable and smug pretty much from the very beginning, and two... It's one of those things where it's like, well, to apply a deep psychological framework to this character, you've chosen that he has to be really damaged. And to basically change one of the great friendships of literature into them hating each other, or to Watson kind of having to tolerate Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I read some of the Sherlock Holmes stories after watching Sherlock, and it's like, I'm sorry, but there is just a level of fun in these stories that is absent from Sherlock. And I just... And I actually I didn't even watch the last three or yeah, how many were in the final Trust series. Trust me, you didn't miss very much. And the reason I didn't was because you were saying, this just isn't working anymore. And it's like, yeah, I just... And I didn't like when everyone thought they were working. I don't think Bond quite falls into that trap because... Well, I just think that because he is a bit of a loner, he doesn't, yeah, there isn't as much a risk there as to sort of like, yeah, say that one of the great friendships of literature actually has been reframed so they hate each other. It's like, ugh, whatever. Um, and also, I don't think there's an insufferability here because Stephen Moffat didn't get his paws on it. But yeah, it's a good comparison though, because it's like these characters weren't supposed to be treated this way. And when you do treat them this way, you can often write yourself into some quandaries that you can't get out of. But to your point for Mission of Movie, it's like, yeah, it is going to... I think it might be quite difficult. Well, no, 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 sorry, that was... You've got the perfect out for Bond. And we might have talked about it before, but this is a perfect time to reintroduce the way you think Bond should be done. So over to you, because th- this is the way to do Bond. Go on. 
Um, and essentially, my attitude is just go back, do a 1940s set Bond film, and then kind of play by ear. You want to do a 60s Bond film? Go ahead. If you want to ape that era. And again, I know that doesn't necessarily avoid playing into the Kingsman thing I've, I've just spoken about. But having said that, there's I think there's still a place in the world for Bond. I think there's still Bond still has enough clear enough identity. But for me, I almost want them to do... You'd have the official canon series where this is the official Bond. And then ideally in parallel that with that, you'd have a series where you'd go, okay, this is the Bond movie we're going to do. We've given it to Tarantino. We've given it to Christopher Nolan. And that's the thing, like, I think the prestige, the one where you give it to the name director who's making it with, you know, doing whatever version that he wants, give it to the author, can kind of hold the prestige. And the other one can just be the fun, this is the Bond movie that we're doing, it's the next mission. Right, so you would say that the prestige ones would be the more idiosyncratic takes? Yes, yeah. Okay, that's interesting, because I always thought that it would be the other way around it, but then you, like they tried to do with Star Wars, that you would have the Star Wars stories, like Solo and Rogue One. They would be the ones that are like, these are not canon Bond. We are now having more fun with the character. I think that's a great idea. I think it's, to say to Tarantino, you can do whatever you want with Bond, because it's a Bond story, not officially part of the Bond and history. Also, uh, actually, I, you know, maybe the prestige thing isn't the right comparison, because I don't know. I Tarantino's Bond. I'm not saying it's going to be brilliant. Although, you know, he's got a pretty good track record. But I would like to see that movie. It doesn't have to be a work of genius. Like, And I know, and I know obviously, the Broccoli is going to be, would potentially veto anything along these lines. I'm sure Amazon would potentially be up for it, because you get more Bond movies for your buck. Absolutely. But... And I know there's a danger of oversaturating. Bond, oversaturating, yeah. Bond still needing to be event cinema. But I think the thing there, a Bond film a year, because we have three Marvel films a year, and that's still event cinema. A Bond film a year, every other year you get a really idiosyncratic take on Bond from a director who is chosen because they're idiosyncratic and also because they're allowed to do what they want rather than just being, as with Marvel does a cool indie director to put on the name onto a poster, but it's still going to be the cookie-cutter look and feel to the film. I think that's a great idea. And also, it's one of those things where, like, you've done something incredibly bold with this film. You killed off your character. This now means that you have opened a door to experimentation. You're kind of free. Yeah, a clean slate. You can do whatever you want. So I think... Your point, you need to write it into a feature and just put it onto the internet because it's such a good idea. I don't know if Bond played as the way that the Craig franchise has played it works contemporaneously anymore. At least it's going to be very difficult to do contemporaneously. Sorry, it's going to be very difficult to do contemporaneously and still have the kind of wanting to play with the actual real geopolitical elements to it. So what do you mean by that? In terms of when M has the line, you know, you used to be able to get the bad guys in the room, now they're just out there in the ether. It's kind of true, yeah. as in, like, I think maybe one of the reasons that the villain of Saffron feels unusual is he's a classic Bond megalomaniac that you can't really do entirely seriously anymore. Not to say there aren't megalomaniacs in the world, there obviously are, and most, you know, there are holding political office, to go back to that. Mm. But you need to be able to say, okay, this one, we're doing a remake of Moonraker, to be utterly absurd. Although, actually, I haven't said this, in terms of escalation... The opening of Casino Royale is Bond murdering a man in a public bathroom. The end of this is an entire island being destroyed with him just having prevented like the launch of a global genocide. Yeah. 
that's fast and furious levels of escalation in terms of one day one day we're, we're stealing DVD players the next one we're going into space like a few years later we're going into space uh, yeah because actually I mean the how many world threatening what I mean I'm actually trying to remember what was the main threat in Casino Royale the what? fact that the shifter was going to make a bunch of money and use it to fund terrorism yeah, that's right. And actually, all of them have been pretty... I mean, I suppose in Quantum of Solace, you found out that this was actually a much bigger organisation that was planning well, on you, world domination. You, you found this... out that it was quantum. And it's like, quantum? What's quantum? I don't, I've never heard of quantum. It's like Spectre then. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously we get Skyfall, which again, is much more personal stake. It's essentially sure. Silver trying to kill him. And then you get Spectre, which again, I think part of the reason that Spectre doesn't work is that it's just kind of Bond going after someone. Well, I think, Inspector, isn't it that there is a threat there because Blofeld has all those people in that big room on computers, which seem to be a nod to computers is where the wars are fought now. But I can't remember the threat there. I remember it being... Oh, no, it was Nine Eyes. We've actually talked about it. It's the weird surveillance program that's, that's going to yes, steal everyone's data. And that's occasionally what happens when Bond tries to do something topical. Yeah. Because it's like, we can't explore the ramifications of data mining in this movie because it's a complex issue involving like the manipulation of people through things like targeted ads and how it like creates political polarization in terms of introducing people then you just end up like in a massive discussion of how the internet has influenced politics in the modern world and human interaction you can't really do that in a bond film it's just not a good threat. It's a smart threat in terms of by somebody who's, you know, reasonably tuned in. But it also just doesn't work in terms of Bond because it's like there's no immediate threat. But Bond, you actually do kind of need the bomb that's about to go off. Well, I say the way that it was done, and it's a film that is often criticised for the villain's plan. But Tomorrow Never Dies, the megalomaniac who owns a news network who is going to orchestrate catastrophes around the world, including you know, natural disasters and wars so that everyone watches his news channel. It's like, yeah, that's pretty bonkers. Then again, I think that, that as we have got into streaming wars and stuff, not quite as bonkers as it seemed to be at the time. And also is the way that you take something that speaks to a modern development, but keeps it Bond. Because you're right, there's no way to dramatise that threat from Spectre in an exciting way. And it could be the reason why, in No Time to Die, the reason why it's a big missile full of you know, nanobots that are going to wipe out the world through various manufactured viruses. It's like, well, yeah, because that's a very easy threat to understand and you just have to stop this from happening by doing this. That's the Bond formula. But we're going to do something incredibly radically different with the Bond formula, which is he has to make the ultimate sacrifice. That is really bold. And I think it opens up a lot of experimentation opportunities. Hopefully they won't just play it safe. I mean, you could have like an animated Bond film. You could get an anime Bond. There was a film in the early 80s called Golgo 13, which is this Japanese anime. It's very, very Bond. It's an 18 certificate, or it used to be. It's very violent. You've got lots of sex in it, but it's clearly just influenced by Bond. And it's great. I mean, it's really wild. And I think he shoots someone through a building because he just gets the trajectory of his right. So they're moving at that speed. I need to fire through this window now, and it just goes through an entire building, and then gets the guys going by on a train or, or just, something. Yeah. Like, yeah, something like that. Like, it just doesn't have to be staged. Just because you're doing a period action film, there are ways to keep Bond fresh and unique and interesting. And Craig was a real reinvention. 
Mm. And I know that gets talked about a lot. I mean, Craig's Bond could exist in the same world as Jason Bourne. And what comes next? And I think No Time to Die sets it up really well. I mean, like, I'm not saying I'm immediately desperate to rush out and see the next Bond film. I'm glad there can definitely be a period of downtime. Yeah. But I'm excited to go and see No Time to Die again. Yeah, me too. So as like a final thought, the casting of Daniel Craig was really radical. And as we talked about, it caused a lot of people to be very unhappy in the same way that they were when Heath Ledger. They just seem to think that actors get cast because they win a competition or something. It's like, these are this is their job. It's their job to play someone else. And I think that Daniel Craig is going to take that job very seriously. But the Bond films used to be their own thing. And they set a formula that everyone copied. These ones, though, seem to be reacting to how action cinema has evolved because of Bond films. So Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace are very much in the shadow of Jason Bourne in terms of their style. It's like, yes, that's directly influenced by what was being done in the Bourne movies. And then Skyfall, it's like, well, Sam Mendes said Christopher Nolan is owed a big debt for this film. And that is a very, very Christopher Nolan movie. Spectre as well is, I would say, like a pretty Christopher Nolan movie. And I was actually thinking, well, is No Time to Die the first one that actually just looked back to Bond films and tried to be a Bond film rather than reacting to what's happening in current action cinema? I suppose it could say it's like Mission Impossible, maybe. This seemed to be the film where I, I didn't think, oh, it's influenced by this action film and this action film. I thought this is a film that seems like a Bond film, which I liked and I think shows that there is some future in it. Just got to do your idea. <laughs> Such a good idea. Such a way to keep it fresh and to play around with it. I mean, you could even do it that Bond, that the canon Bond has the same actor. Tom Hardy seems to be a favourite right now. But the Bond stories, it's a different Bond in each one. Could be that. Yeah. This is just a Bond story. So therefore it doesn't have to be Tom Hardy or whoever is the next Bond. It could just, it's just, it's just someone else. You could have like an old Bond or, I mean, there's just so many things you could do with this. Yeah, I just think you've been incredibly bold with this film. Don't lose the potential of what you could do with this franchise to keep it fresh. We'll see how that goes. So is there anything else to say about No Time to Die? No, I think we've probably equaled the runtime. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, actually, I really think we have. I think, yes, this will probably come in at about 90 minutes cut. That was, well, it was, it was a big film to talk about. So what do we think is going to be next? I London mean, Film Festival. Well, we're doing like a wrap-up of the London Film Festival, definitely. Uh, Halloween Kills, The Last Jewel, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And June. And June. Oh, oh God, no, June very soon. June's the next thing. Yeah, we'll probably do the London Film Festival in June in the same week. Mm. You can look forward to that. So in a couple of weeks, you'll hear our thoughts about the London Film Festival and also Dune, the big sci-fi film that has in itself also been much delayed. So we'll see if that was worth the wait too. Just say June again. Dune. So on that note, let's do the pluggables. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. I'll find my writing ad of all the film sites www.allthefilmsites.com Cool, and we might do another podcast that people would like to listen to. Yes, we also do the uh, Another Time McLeod, which is a podcast devoted entirely to Highlander. We're going through it minute by minute, or, or fairly close to, and you can find that wherever you're listening to this, on Spotify, Apple, etc. Uh, you can also follow that on Twitter, at Time, and we have an email account who wants to pod forever at gmail.com Cool, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. My writing can be found at electric-shadows.com. 
And if you want to follow the Movie Robcast on Twitter, it's at Movie Robcast. And if you want to rate and review us, then please do wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps the pod and it's always much appreciated. And something that I'm actually going to nick from the honeymoon period that they did. If you like the show, tell a friend. Because we're not very good at publicising ourselves. So therefore, if you like what you hear, tell a friend. So thank you very much. And yes, we will be coming at you again very soon with a huge review of uh, the London Film Festival. There's some really, really good films playing there. And we'll also be talking about Dune. There's a young lady in Santiago I want you to meet. Paloma? You're late. This is going to go brilliantly. I know. I've done three weeks training. You were excellent. You too. Next time, stay longer.